I have a note here. So what am I doing with my afflictive emotions? When they are not strong, I can keep my attention on the breath. But when the anger, the fear, the sadness is stronger, then the stability is lost. What to do? Well, luckily, the Buddha addresses this problem with his teaching on the five hindrances, the five states of mind that can hinder progress on the spiritual path. This might not be quite as interesting a talk as last night, but hopefully it will be useful information. The description of the first jhana always starts out with secluded from sense desires, secluded from unwholesome states of mind. One enters and remains in the first jhana. As I said, that seclusion from sense desires and unwholesome states of mind is the abandoning of the five hindrances. There's a teaching called the graduated training or the gradual training that occurs repeatedly throughout the discourses of the Buddha. I'll go into it in a bit more detail. But often what we find just prior to the description of the jhanas is this teaching on the abandoning of the hindrances. The Buddha recognized that sitting down, putting your attention on your breath, wasn't all there was to it. He says, Having abandoned covetousness for the world, one dwells with a mind free from covetousness. One purifies one's mind from covetousness. So this first hindrance is given here as covetousness for the world. Sometimes you see it expressed as the desire for sense pleasures. Uh, Kama Chanda. It's the wanting, the wanting mind. When you're caught in planning, it can be wanting. might be other things. You might be planning out of fear might be planning out of boredom. But often the, there's wanting involved. You, you want something. You want to have a good holiday when you go to Spain or something like that. The Buddha compares this sense desire to being in debt. Suppose a man were to take a loan and apply it to his business and his business were to succeed so that he could pay back his old debts and would have enough money left over to maintain a family. He would reflect on this, and as a result, he would become glad and experience joy. If you are in debt, you must continually work to pay back the debt. You can't simply call up the bank and say, well, I'm going to go to Spain on holiday this month, and I'm not going to make a payment. I hope that's okay with you. Or you can't even call them up and say, I lost my job. I can't make the payment this month. I hope it's okay with you. As unfortunately, far too many people have discovered in this recent recession, the bank has no sympathy for that. You've got to keep working. It's the same with our sense pleasures. No sense pleasure is ultimately satisfying. If you get something that is quite nice, you simply want to keep it or repeat it or get something similar to it. And so, like being in debt, we must continually work to satisfy our desire for sensual pleasures, our wanting. There is no fulfillment to be found by obtaining what you want. Oh, okay, you get some fulfillment for a bit, but no ultimate fulfillment. We usually assume that when we want something and we get it and that feels great, that it's due to the fact that we got what we wanted. But have you ever stopped to consider that it actually might be due to the fact that you stopped wanting? The relief from the wanting produces quite a bit of pleasure. 
So perhaps a more effective strategy would be to let go of the wanting. The Buddha also compared sense desire to a pond into which someone had poured many different colored dyes. If you try and look into the pond, you cannot see into the depths. The dyes prevent you from seeing this. Now, this hasn't quite answered the question, what to do about the wanting mind? It's just pointing out that it's a problem. Well, luckily, in the commentaries, there are six things that are given to do to deal with sense desire. These are learning the sign of the unattractive, that is, the repulsive nature of the body, application to meditation on the unattractive, guarding the doors of the sense faculties, moderation in eating, noble friends and noble conversations. It's probably not the list you were hoping for. Okay, so learning the sign of the unattractive, that is the repulsive nature of the body, and application to meditation on the unattractive. What this is referring to is that at the time of the Buddha, if you had a lot of lust, a lot of sense desire, they would send you to the charnel ground to do your meditation. Now, a charnel ground is not like a cemetery. A cemetery is actually a rather pleasant place. You know, little statues, they cut the grass. Uh, A charnel ground is where they dump the bodies of the people who didn't have enough money to pay for a cremation. And the bodies got eaten and they rotted. It was not a pleasant place. Visually unappetizing, and I imagine it smelled rather unappetizing. And they would send you there and tell you to sit down in front of a rotting corpse and meditate on that corpse, contemplate that corpse. The body that you were lusting after was going to wind up like that. And also to recognize your own body was going to wind up like that. Well, we don't have charnel grounds around here. We do have a cemetery. You might go wander through that cemetery. Kind of an interesting thing to do, but not quite the same impact. In the West, I think what we need to do more than anything else is get a realistic picture of the body. As I mentioned this morning, the media is basically telling us never have a body that looks more than 25 years old. You know, stay young forever. But it's not possible. So I think our goal in the West in terms of the body is more getting a realistic picture than looking at the disgusting nature of it. We in the West often have low self-esteem, and for many people that's directly associated with the body. So to battle the low self-esteem, it's helpful to get a realistic picture of not only your body, but all the bodies. Guarding the doors of the sense faculties. This means that when you see something, hear something, smell something, taste something, touch something, or think something, you don't get lost in the sensory input and what follows from that. Far too often we see something and we're immediately off on a train of thought. There's all sorts of stuff stirred up by that, including quite possibly the wanting. So what the Buddha says is that one should not get caught up in the signs or secondary characteristics. In other words, when you see something, just simply see it and let it go without really focusing on it and getting caught in the wishing and the wanting. Moderation in eating. Not a lot of excitement on a retreat like this. Uh, 
about the only excitement you got is eating. And there is indeed a tendency, because that's your excitement for today, to stoke up on it, get a lot of sense pleasure out of it. Uh, Generally, that just tends to increase the wanting of the food. If you're looking for your pleasure in the food, okay, so you get some pleasure for, what, 20 minutes? I mean, how long does your meal last? And then you come back in here, and you're trying to meditate, and you're thinking about the food. So you should be moderate in your eating so that it doesn't become the most important part of your day. I've heard it said that if you can eat until just before you feel full, that's the perfect way to do it. Of course, the problem, you don't know when you're going to feel full until you get there, so a bit tricky. And then noble friends and noble conversations. I will defer discussing that for the moment. So this still hasn't addressed the question of what to do about sense desire when you're sitting here meditating and it comes up quite strongly. I wish I had some really good suggestions. You see, I'm a greed type and so that's often what I'm dealing with is sense desire. So when I say I wish I had some really good suggestions, it's a thing I wish I really had. What I can tell you that I found that works the best is if the desire is for something to get a realistic picture of what it is I'm desiring, to see its limitations, to see that it's not going to bring lasting happiness. One of the, one of the ways that we can get caught in sense desire is the phenomena known as a Vipassana romance. You're on a retreat, and you see someone, and you know you can tell they're really serious about their practice because they walk like it, and they, they sit so well, and besides, they're very attractive. And the next thing you know, you're caught up in your fantasies. The idea of seeing what's really going on is recognizing that, one, you don't know anything about this person. It's just your ideas that are happening there. And two, even if they were to turn out to be as wonderful as you are imagining them to be, it still wouldn't be totally satisfying. And the odds are probably 100% they won't turn out to be exactly who you're imagining them to be. So trying to get a realistic picture of what's going on. That's probably the best that I can tell you with the sense desire, to see it, name it, and really investigate the objects that are attracting your attention. The second hindrance. Having abandoned ill will and hatred... One dwells with a benevolent mind, sympathetic for the welfare of all living beings. One purifies one's mind from ill will and hatred. So the second hindrance is ill will and hatred, the opposite of the first hindrance. The first hindrance is the wanting mind, wanting to get things. The second hindrance is pushing things away, not wanting. This covers everything from ill will and hatred to Sadness, fear. In fact, fear is probably at the basis of most hatred. I made this statement in a retreat, and somebody wrote me a note and said, I, I hate broccoli, but I'm not afraid of it. <laughs> and what I responded was, You're afraid of the unpleasant Vedana you will experience by putting broccoli in your mouth. Okay? You're not afraid it's going to attack you, but you're afraid of the unpleasant Vedana. It seems that fear is really at the basis of all of our aversion. Fear that we will, for some reason, experience some unpleasant Vedana. The Buddha compares ill will and hatred to being physically ill. 
Suppose a man were to become sick, afflicted, gravely ill, so that he could not enjoy his food and his strength were to decline. Then after some time he would recover from that illness and would enjoy his food again and regain his bodily strength. He would reflect on this, and as a result he would become glad and experience joy. So they don't call it ill will for nothing. When you are overcome with ill will, it's very much like being ill. You don't feel well. You can't think straight. You're hot. You can't really do what you want to do. This is a perfect description of illness as well as ill will and hatred. The Buddha also compares ill will and hatred to a pond in which there's a boiling hot spring. If you try and look into the depths, you can't see what's there. In another sutta, he talked about hatred as being like picking up hot coals and throwing them at someone. Now, who's guaranteed to get burned? If the other person has any sense, they just jump out of the way. They don't try and catch the coals and throw them back. However, we do have this tendency, if someone gets angry at us, to get angry back at them. In other words, to catch the coals, blow on them and get them hotter and throw them back. There's a story about a Brahmin who came to see the Buddha, and he was very upset. His younger brother had come a few days earlier to see the Buddha, and the Buddha had corrupted him because his younger brother had become a monk. And so this Brahmin was quite upset, and he's getting in the Buddha's face, and he's you know shaking his finger and saying he's doing all sorts of nasty, evil things, corrupting the youth, and going on and on and on. And finally, he stops for a breath, and the Buddha says, Excuse me, sir, do you ever give a feast? Uh, yes, certainly I give feasts. When you give a feast, do you prepare nice food for your guests? Well, of course I prepare nice food for your guests. Well, suppose you prepared food for a feast, but nobody came to your feast. To whom would the food belong? Belong to me. Just so, Brahman. I'm not coming to your feast. In other words, the Buddha didn't take on the anger that this Brahman was expressing towards him. The Brahman was so impressed that he decided to become a monk as well. When someone's angry at you, there's no written law that you have to become angry back. If you can keep your equanimity you have a much better chance of diffusing the situation without things escalating into an even worse situation. Of course, sometimes when you don't get angry back, the person that's angry at you becomes angry because you're not getting angry as well. But that's their problem, not yours. Luckily, however, there are six things to do for overcoming ill will and hatred. These are learning the sign of loving-kindness, application to meditation on loving-kindness, reflection on the ownership of action, abundance of wise reflection, noble friends and noble conversations. Learning the sign of loving-kindness and application to meditation on loving-kindness. If your hindrance you're experiencing is an aversive one, then the thing to do is stop the practice that you were doing and start doing metta meditation. So if you're working with the breath and some aversion comes up and you can set it aside and continue on with the breath, fine. But if it keeps coming up and it really isn't something that you can set aside, then forget about the breath and start doing metta meditation. Now, it may be far too difficult to do loving-kindness practice for the person that is generating this negativity. 
right? You don't have to do it towards any particular person at all. If you can do it for the person that's generating the negativity, that's pretty powerful practice. But do it for somebody. doesn't matter who. Do it for yourself. You certainly need it at this point, given the fact that, you know, this aversion is coming up and is preventing your meditation from going well. Do it for the Dalai Lama. Do it for somebody you care about. Just simply get your mind off of the aversion and then get it into a positive state. Metta is a very powerful practice. I have said that if they were to come to me and say, you can only do one practice, choose, I would unhesitatingly say metta practice. It's quite transformative. I'll tell you a story. In 1975, I got divorced. It was not a pleasant experience. You see, she... Uh, you don't need to know. It just was not pleasant. Okay. So, ten years later, 1985, I went on my first retreat. And Ayakema was doing guided metta meditations in the same form that I've done them the last two nights. And when she got to the difficult person, <clears throat> actually she said... Think of your enemy and send love to your enemy. Well, I knew who my enemy was. Anybody that would... uh, (laughs) I didn't want to send her any love. Not even some meta. I mean, just... I mean, how could I? But there was my teacher up there telling me to do it, so it was like, all right, here, you can have a little bit. And then, luckily, we went on to other categories, and that was that. Except, of course, the next day, I had to do it again. And the next day, again, and on for 10 days. I really like the metta practice. I, I, I couldn't follow my breath. <clears throat> that was just too boring. And I was able to do the body scan that Ayakema showed us. But that was a lot of work. But the metta practice, I found that quite nice, except for that little part about sending metta to my ex-wife. But I didn't think I should leave it out. So each day at the start of my sitting, I would do about 10 minutes of metta practice. And each day I'd give my ex-wife a little bit of metta, you know, very begrudgingly. This went on for five years. And my attitude towards her changed from, I hate your guts, to, gee, I wish you hadn't done that. And then one day I got a letter from her. And in the letter she said, I'm sorry, I was wrong, you were right, please forgive me. Now, I'm not going to claim that sending her meta for five years caused her to write the letter. I have no idea why she wrote the letter. But what I do know is the next day when I did my metta practice, I had to find some other difficult person. She had arrived in the category of neutral person, and she's been there ever since. Of course, you can always find more difficult people. There's plenty of politicians around. So So the answer to the question that I read out, if you're finding sadness, anger, things like that, and you can't set it aside and come back to the breath, then let go of the practice you're doing and start doing some metta practice for yourself, for someone you like to do metta for, just for anybody. And the concentration aspect of the metta practice will be helpful, and the fact that it's taking your mind in a completely opposite direction will be quite helpful. Reflection on the ownership of action. Ever do something when you are angry that wasn't really the wisest choice? Well, you still have to reap the results of that action. It's not like you can uh, later call up the karma gods and go, "Uh, sorry, I was angry then. Uh, can, Can we just set this aside? No. Basically, when you're in an angry state, when you have ill will and hatred, 
you are putting yourself in a position where you will probably not act in the wisest fashion. You are disempowering yourself, and yet you will still have to reap the results of this action. So recognizing that this angry state is an not an empowering state, but a disempowering state may be helpful for you letting it go. Abundance of wise reflection. Simply paying attention to what the aversive state feels like. Feel how unpleasant it is. Feel how the unpleasantness you're experiencing with this aversion is not really solving the problem. I mean, if you're sitting here and you're mad at somebody who's 100 miles away, your anger in no way is affecting them. It's affecting you, but, you know, it's not doing anything to solve the problem. So just reflect on this angry experience that you're having and see the limitations of it. And then noble friends and noble conversations, which I will again defer. The third of the hindrances. Having abandoned dullness and drowsiness, one dwells perceiving light, mindful and clearly comprehending. One purifies one's mind from dullness and drowsiness. Often this one is translated as sloth and torpor, uh, sleepiness and laziness. It can take the form of being physically sleepy, And so as you get concentrated, you fall asleep. Or it can take the form of just being lazy. You sit down, and it's just a lot of work to follow the breath, and you just rather fantasize. Or maybe you'll just skip this meditation period altogether. So either of these would come under this hindrance. The Buddha compares sloth and torpor to being in prison. Suppose a man were locked up in a prison, and after some time he would be released from prison, safe and secure, with no loss of his possessions. He would reflect on this, and as a result, he would become glad and experience joy. If you're a prisoner, you can't do anything. You're just sitting there, missing out on all the good stuff. If you're overcome with sloth and torpor, You can't do anything. You're just sitting there, not able to gain any insight, not able to get concentrated, not able to follow the spiritual path. It's like being in prison. The Buddha compared sloth and torpor to a stagnant pond, one that's choked with weeds and algae. Again, you can't see into the depths. But luckily... There are six things to do for overcoming sloth and torpor. These are recognizing that overeating is the basis for sloth and torpor, changing the postures, attention to the perception of light, living in the open air, noble friends and noble conversations. So recognizing that overeating is the basis for sloth and torpor. There's a reason that we don't have meditation periods right after the meals. I mean, not just because we need you to wash the dishes. After you've eaten, your system is busy digesting the food. And the more food you eat, the longer it's going to take to digest it. And if it takes a long time to digest it, then when you sit down, you're going to fall asleep. So once again, eating less food. Eating less food actually helps you overcome two of the hindrances. There have been several people in the interviews who mentioned that they're dealing with sleepiness. I would say on most retreats that I teach, about 40% of my students mention that they're dealing with sleepiness at the beginning of a retreat. I suspect the actual number dealing with sleepiness is more than 40%, maybe like 60-70%. So if that's part of what you're dealing with here at the start of the retreat, just eat some less food. I mean, after all, how, much, how many calories do you need? 
You're spending your day sitting around. Okay, so you burn a few calories with your brain while you're trying to concentrate. But, you know, skip the entertainment value of the food. Just get some nourishment. Don't overeat, and you'll be dealing less with sloth and torpor. Changing the postures. Attention to the perception of light. Living in the open air. If you're feeling sleepy, open your eyes, rub your cheeks, pinch and pull on your earlobes. If you know where the acupressure point is on the sides of your ears, you can squeeze that very hard. That should wake you up for at least a few minutes. And if all else fails, stand up. You're not going to fall asleep standing up with your eyes open. Now, if you're doing standing meditation, make sure that you flex your knees. If you lock your knees, you might pass out. This would be most unpleasant for you and whoever you fall on. So keep your knees flexed. You can continue to follow the breath, or you can put your attention into the subtle motions that you're making to stay standing. You may think that when you just stand there, you're not moving. But actually, there's a little bit of subtle motions that you're doing all the time to keep your balance. So you can pay attention to those subtle motions and just do that sort of meditation to keep yourself awake. But definitely the first thing to do when you find that you're getting sleepy is to get yourself out of it. Continuing to pursue deepening your concentration is probably not useful because that'll just make you sleepier. If you know a practice that you find is a little more energizing, switch to doing that practice. You might find metta practice a bit more energizing. If you know the body scan, you might find that a bit more energizing. They say if you do the body scan from the feet up, it's more energizing. I never have myself noticed much difference, but you can try it out and see. And then there's noble friends and noble conversations, which I will defer again. The fourth of the hindrances. Having abandoned restlessness and worry, one dwells at ease within oneself with a peaceful mind. One purifies one's mind from restlessness and worry. So this is the opposite of the sloth and torpor, the too much energy, too much energy in the body or too much energy in the mind. Sometimes when you sit down, your body just, it doesn't want to sit. You just can't find a comfortable spot. And when you do get settled, it's just not right. You've got to move. Or you sit down, your body is fine, but your mind is all over the place. It just won't get settled on the breath. It's got to run off and entertain itself or... There's this restlessness. The Buddha compares that to being a slave. Suppose a man were a slave without independence, subservient to others, unable to go where he wants. And after some time, he would be released from slavery and gain his independence. He would no longer be subservient to others, but a free man able to go where he wants. He would reflect on this, and as a result, he would become glad and experience joy. So a slave is compelled to go there, do that, go here, do this. The slave is always doing what the master wants done, not what the slave wants to do. If you're overcome with restlessness and worry, you're unable to do what you want to do, even though there's this huge amount of activity, either physically or mentally. The Buddha compared restlessness and worry to a small pond where there's a strong wind blowing over the surface and the waves prevent you from seeing down into the depths. But luckily, there are six things to do for overcoming restlessness and worry. Much learning, interrogation, skill in the Vinaya, associating with senior monks, noble friends and noble conversations. Much learning. 
Sometimes the restlessness arises simply because we don't know quite what to do. And so we are struggling to find out, all right, how should I be doing this practice? What's going on here? So learn what you can, both about the Buddha's teachings as well as the practice. Interrogation. Ask questions. The Buddha felt that it was very important to ask questions. He encouraged his monks and nuns to ask questions. Skill in the Vinaya. Skill in the precepts. The Vinaya is the rules for the monks and nuns. 227 for the monks, 313 for the nuns. But as lay people, we really only have the five precepts to worry about. So skill in the precepts. In keeping the precepts, it means you have much less to worry about. I mean, to take a gross example, if you're out robbing banks and then you sit down to meditate, you're probably going to be worried about them coming and hauling you off to jail. Right? But if you've been keeping the precepts, there's definitely less to worry about. Associating with senior monks. Hanging out with people from whom you can learn what the Dharma is about. These things can be helpful. Now, what's really being addressed here is more the worry aspect. The restlessness aspect can sometimes be helped by going for a vigorous walk. If you feel like you have too much energy, then go burn some of it off. Just go for a vigorous, mindful walk. Interestingly enough, going for a vigorous walk can also sometimes be helpful for the opposite. You're overcome with sloth and torpor. So wake yourself up. You know, see if you can get your energy level up by going for a vigorous walk. And I will defer the noble friends and noble conversations. The fifth of the hindrances, having abandoned doubt, one dwells as one who has passed beyond doubt. Unperplexed about wholesome states, one purifies one's mind from doubt. Doubt is uh, an insidious hindrance. The doubt can take many forms. Doubt about, did the Buddha really know what he was talking about? Was he really enlightened? Doubt about the Dharma? Is it really the truth? Or is this that we're learning really what the Buddha was teaching? Has it gotten garbled along the way? Doubt about the Sangha in the sense, can anybody else become enlightened? Maybe only people 2,500 years ago can become enlightened. What am I doing on this path? And probably the most destructive doubt of all, doubt about yourself. I can't do this. This is too hard. This is impossible. It's it's just beyond my abilities. The Buddha compares skeptical doubt to being on a perilous desert journey where bandits abound and provisions are scarce. Suppose a man with wealth and possessions were traveling along a desert road where food was scarce and dangers were many. After some time, he would cross over the desert and arrive safely at a village which is safe and free from danger. He would reflect on this, and as a result, he would become glad and experience joy. If you have a doubting mind, you're not sure what to do. If you're on the perilous desert journey... You think, well, we should go this way, but wait, there might be bandits. Better to go this way. No, there won't be any water. So there's more starting and stopping than actual progressing. So you set out on the spiritual path, and you're following the Theravadan, the Vipassana path, but it's kind of dry. You want something a little more colorful, exciting. Well, the Tibetans, I mean... Have you seen what they got? They got the horns and they got the colorful paintings. So you switch to Tibetan practice and you start doing that. But it turns out to be a little too Baroque, a little too Catholic. Zen, that's where it's at. I mean, look at their gardens. This is really cool and they got all these great stories. So you switch to Zen practice. 
Turns out they hit you with a stick. <laughs> Sufi dancing, that's where it's at. You're, you're trying one thing after another. You're never finding out where any of this stuff actually leads. I've heard it said that if you really want to find out where a path will take you, it's necessary to follow it for five years. Now, this doesn't mean that if you start out down a path and you realize, uh, this is not the right path for me, that you've got to stick with it for five years before you can change your mind. But if you do find yourself trying one practice and then another and then another and then another, it might be that it's not the practice that's at fault. It's that you're just not sticking with something long enough to find out what's really going on. The Buddha compared skeptical doubt to a little pond that's very muddy, which prevents you from seeing into the depths. But there are six things to do for overcoming skeptical doubt. And they're very much like for overcoming restlessness and worry. Much learning, interrogation, skill in the Vinaya, resolution, noble friends and noble conversations. To overcome your doubt, learn what you can about the practice. Learn what you can about the Dharma. Ask questions. This can be quite helpful. If you're finding it's not working, ask questions to find out what you can about what's going on, what it's supposed to look like. Skill in the Vinaya Try out keeping the precepts. See if this makes your life better. In many spiritual traditions, the ethical behavior is based on do this or you wind up in hell or something equivalent to that. You can find that in Buddhism, but really the depths of the Buddha's teaching is this is the way to behave that actually works the best. It just makes your life go easier if you don't go around killing living beings or taking what's not given or misusing your sexual energy or telling lies or getting intoxicated. Resolution. Resolve to stay with a practice till you've explored it and see where it leads. It's the only way you're going to find out. Reading about a practice, talking to other people about a practice can be helpful, but the real proof is in actually doing the practice, and it's probably going to take a while to follow through and see where it goes. And noble friends and noble conversations. These are helpful for all of the hindrances. Not so helpful while you're practicing, obviously, since you're not going to be having a conversation with anybody at that point. But helpful for getting yourself to where the hindrances are much less likely to arise when you're practicing. There's a sutta where Ananda, who is the Buddha's attendant, was having a discussion with another monk. And what they were discussing was what was the most important aspect of the spiritual path. And the other monk was the meditation master. He felt that meditation was the most important part of the spiritual path. Well, Ananda was a very outgoing, gregarious soul, an extrovert. And he felt that noble friends and noble conversation was the most important part of the path. And so they discussed it back and forth. And as always happens in these things, they went to see the Buddha. And they saluted the Buddha and sat down at one side. And Ananda said, Venerable Sir... I say that noble friends and noble conversations are half the holy life. The Buddha replied, Do not say so, Ananda. Noble friends and noble conversations are the entire holy life. It's really difficult to practice this path without having like-minded people around to share supporting each other. And this support is very important for helping you overcome these hindrances. So these are sort of the basic categories of things that can arise when you're trying to get concentrated. The wanting mind, the aversive mind, 
the tired or lazy mind, the restless or worrying mind, and the doubting mind. You should apply the antidotes as best you can. A general antidote is substitute with the opposite. For hatred, the opposite is love. For wanting, it's seeing that the object of your wanting isn't going to bring ultimate fulfillment. For sleepiness, it's do things to wake yourself up. For too much energy, try and see if you can get yourself calmed down. And for the doubting mind, learn as much as you can so that you actually have the fortitude to stick with the practice. When one sees that these five hindrances are not abandoned within oneself, one regards that as a debt, as a sickness, as confinement in prison, as slavery, as a desert road. But when one sees that these five hindrances have been abandoned within oneself, one regards that as freedom from debt, as good health, as release from prison, as freedom from slavery, as a place of safety. When one sees that these five hindrances have been abandoned within oneself, gladness arises. When one is gladdened, rapture arises. When one's mind is filled with rapture, one's body becomes tranquil. Tranquil in body, one experiences happiness. Being happy, one's mind becomes concentrated. Quite secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, one enters and remains in the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. Questions? Comments? Right. The wanting mind and the pleasurable sensations for entering the jhanas. Yeah, it's tricky. It's definitely tricky. As I said, if you have expectations, that's going to get in the way. If you really want to get into the jhana, you can't get into the jhana. Uh, Great teaching of the second noble truth. Craving brings dukkha. And yet, there is the pleasure that is necessary to focus on to trigger the arising of the jhana. And then there's the pleasure of the jhana itself when it does arise. When I was at Wat Suan Mok in southern Thailand, they talked about wise wishes and foolish desires. So wanting to come on a meditation retreat, wanting to see the truth, wanting to gain insight, these would be classified as wise wishes. Uh, wanting to experience some blissful state and hang out there would be considered a foolish desire. So there is some wanting that's necessary. There's, thankfully, pleasure on the spiritual path. The Buddha frequently mentions the fact that gladness and joy are a necessary component of the spiritual path. So the idea is basically to... Well, here we go again, to see where you are, to find out what the instructions say to do at that point, and just do that without what Ayakema called result thinking. And, yeah, as part of the practice for entering the first jhana, when you recognize the mind has gotten to access concentration and been stabilized there for a bit, then there's a focusing on pleasure. That's just part of the path. But if you're wanting the jhana, it's going to prevent you from getting to the access concentration, which then there's no point in focusing on the pleasure because it's not going to do you any good. I suppose I was going to, because I can see how that would work when you're first starting up. Once you've got to that, that pleasurable sensation, you know, and you're right on the cusp of it, then it's sort of like you really have to know that you need to be there. Right. Yeah. You need to know that you need to stay focused on the pleasurable sensation. But you don't need to know what comes next. You don't even have to think about what comes next. Just stay focused on the pleasurable sensation and enjoy it. 
There's nothing wrong with enjoying, right? It's the grasping and seeking that causes the problems. But being there and just staying focused on it is not a problem. Try it out and see. That's the best I can say. Other questions or comments? How is sadness part of a aversive mind? You see it? Yeah. Basically, you don't like something that's happened, right? And so you don't want that to be there. And the sadness is what we call the reaction of not wanting that to be there. The mental state that arises by not accepting that this unpleasant thing has occurred. And so it's the non-accepting of the reality. And so the, it's it's sort of pushing away reality. I, all of these are broad categories and, you know, some of it fits really obviously and some of it is not quite so obvious. But if I try and think, is sadness wanting? Well, no. Is it sloth and torpor or restlessness and worry? Not really. Is it doubt? No. It, it seems to fit more into the aversion category, although it's not really what I would call an aversive state. It's more like I don't want things to be like this. So remember that the words that are given, the sense desire or covetousness or the uh, ill will and hatred are sort of extreme examples, but it covers quite a large range. 